Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. Right is out. Look, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Hey, good afternoon. It's John Pielli here, Ball Show on the MTR Radio Network. I'm here with uh, former Major League outfielder Brad Commons. Brad, what's going on, buddy? John, how's it going, man? So, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, about that experience. And, you know, obviously you've also managed in the minor leagues as well. Yeah, I mean, that's what the Orioles for the last five years. Um, last year, I was at the rookie ball team in uh, Aberdeen, Cal Ripken's place, and uh, I was a hitting coach there. Year before, I was in Norfolk, Virginia, as a hitting coach, and then I'd managed three years prior to that in Bowie, Maryland. So, well, I'm not friendly with them, but uh, I did enjoy it over there, definitely. So, good, good spot to work and uh, enjoy my time over there. Yeah, no question about it. Now, obviously, you know, you came you came up as a very highly touted prospect at a, you know at the Atlanta Braves system, first round draft pick, number four overall in 1979. Um, tell us a little bit about the beginning, and you know, you you getting drafted, and you kind of uh, you know getting a chance a little bit in '84 and '85 to play in the big leagues. Yeah, I mean, I was I was drafted back in '79, number one pick for the for the Braves. I was the fourth player chosen overall, um, and obviously. Being 18, it's a pretty exciting time, you know, when you get drafted. You always, you know, the scouts are around, and, but you never really know, you know. And the, I was shipped off to Paintsville, Kentucky, um, for rookie league in the Indianapolis League. And, and uh, obviously, at that age, a lot of wonder, wonder a lot of doubts on how you're going to stack up against some of the best players around the country. But, uh, you know, my career just progressed. You know, year by year, it seemed like I moved up the level. And, and uh you know, putting putting together a pretty good minor league career, you know, major league career, not so not quite so good, but I still got a little bit over four years in the major leagues, and uh, uh, it was great, man. I, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, what really what really stands out, obviously, are your numbers that you had in the minor league. I mean, leagues. I mean, '81, you hit 33 home runs for Durham. You know, between uh, Savannah and Richmond in '82, you hit 28 home runs. Um, you know, what 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 was what was what was the difference, or what what didn't work as far as making a transition to the big leagues? You know, I, just, I think more more than anything, probably just the comfort level. You know, when I when I came up the Braves, they were still you know they were you know, a playoff contender and, and, uh, you know, I just felt like I probably didn't get, 
even though I got some playing time, don't get me wrong, I did play and, and get some at-bats. It just was, I just never really felt comfortable and, and then somebody was really getting consistent time, you know, which, I mean, that's, that just happens is, you know, the situation, the place I was playing, you know, where, um, and I always felt like if I would have ever thrown me out there and gave me 600 bats one year, I thought I would have put up some pretty good numbers. But because I mean, if you if you look at my numbers outside of average, you know, my first couple of years, they were they were actually decent numbers. You know, they were if you if you, if you project them out, you know, like I said, outside of average home runs were okay. You know, stolen bases were good, and RBIs weren't bad for that for that era anyway. You know, obviously. Yeah. The numbers have changed drastically in the last freaking 20 years, you know, with the, with the arrow been going through and the ballparks and a little bit of everything, you know, the synthetically enhanced players, all that stuff. The numbers have really, you know, been skewed. But back then, you know, if you had seven or eight home run or uh, RBIs a year, it wasn't a bad year. You know, I had 35 one year and 300 at bats, and if you projected at 70, it's, that's really not too bad of a year back then. But, you know, for every reason I didn't, and, uh, you know, no, no sour grapes or anything. Uh, I just moved on and you know, had a nice little coaching career, and now I'm uh, watching my son play in 16 and watching my girls play volleyball uh, and really enjoying it. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with Brad Commons. Now, uh, you know, during, you know, you get up there, and obviously your two big opportunities, it seems like, in the major leagues were really 84 and 85. And, you know, you said, you, you know, you feel like you got enough of a chance to play. But in, in your in your opinion, do you think that there was a big difference in being up at the major league as far as, far as uh, you know, what you, what you were able to do in the minors? In other words, do you think over time you could have gotten yourself to the level that you were, you know, let's say in, uh, you know, AAA and stuff before that? I mean, I think so, but obviously other people didn't think, people that made decisions <laughs> didn't think it. So, uh, you know, I did the best I could at the time, and, and uh, it just wasn't quite good enough. But, but um, you know, it is what it is, you know. Move on, and, and uh, things are good now, so I can't complain. Now, I tell you the one thing that one thing that stands out, and you look at you know highlight films and stuff like that. You have that uh, that catcher non-catch that you know you you you, you literally <laughs> climbed the fence playing for the Cleveland Indians in 1989, and you know it looks like you got it, and it looks like the ball may have came out as you fell over the fence. Tell us a little bit about that play. Well, it definitely came out going over the fence. Yeah. But, but Cal Ripken hit it. Um, John Farrell threw it. <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> that's about how it all. That's about how it all happened. But um, you know, I think it's Ripken's 20th home run for his eighth consecutive year or something, which um, you know for him was pretty good. So uh, you know, I just dropped on the other side. You know, I, when I kind of fell over the fence, the, my glove kind of torqued and the ball fell out of the end, and, and uh, the ball ended up getting stuck behind. There was a one of those little metal. Uh, tubes that hold the tarps in the back that was empty that it got stuck behind or or uh, I probably grabbed the ball and picked it up like I caught it you know I'm trying to trick everybody <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no such luck I got caught on the diamond division that was it well you know what though it's it's funny because uh, you know you you know you may have had a chance back then to get away with it now with all the you know the slow-mos and the freeze frames and everything right. there would be absolutely no chance nowadays you know yeah not, not now well yeah, they, they still miss them now too <laughs> you see the so much every now and then yeah, and they, very true. And they still miss with all the replays and stuff so you know, stranger things have happened. So I got to ask you, a play like that, is that something that you practice? Do you actually practice, you know, scaling a wall yeah. like that? Because, uh, you know, it's something you don't see no, too often. People can actually like, get up that high. You can't, like, practice it. You just kind of react <laughs> and you let your instincts take over. and You don't even think about it. It just happens, you know. 
Nah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli, here, former Major League Outfielder Brad Commons. Now, as you, uh, you know, as you end up, uh, you know, finishing up your Major League career, you get into coaching. Of course, you spend some time, uh, you know, managing. Of course, tell us a little bit about the transition from being a player to being a coach. Um, you know, for me, it wasn't that bad because I knew my playing days were pretty much over, and uh, I was actually going to go manage a, a Frontier League team and. And the Tigers called me. One of their coaches' uh, father had passed away, and, and uh, he had to take care of the estate. So one of their coaches had to, had to kind of you know take a leave of absence or a, you know a couple of years sabbatical. So one of my buddies, who was one of the special assistants uh, for the GM up there, called me and said, "Hey, do you want to you want to coach at AAA?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> and that's how that's how it all started. So I coached up there for, with the Tigers for a couple of years up in Toledo. I was a hitting coach, and then. Um, the Indians offered me a managing job in, in A-ball and you know I jumped at the opportunity to manage that's why I decided what I wanted to do um, so the Indians I worked for the Indians for eight years you know managed six years and then was an outfield base running coordinator for a couple of years um, ended up going to the Phillies for a year and then Baltimore for the last five years so um, it was a good run. Definitely a good run. No, nah, no question about it. Now, Brad, was it was is there a, was there a moment maybe in your career that kind of stands out as like let's say like uh, you know let's say something that happened that you'll always remember as a player? I mean, I that almost catch was something you always remember. You know, your your first hit, you always remember. First home run, all that stuff you remember. So, um, opening day, your first hit bat, all that stuff you know, they all stick out and you remember. You know, definitely. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli with Brad Commons. Now, uh, you know, as you um, as you end up, uh, you know, getting getting through to you know the coaching ranks and being you know being a manager, you got a chance to uh, play for, or I'm sorry, manage a couple teams that ended up doing well, getting to the play the playoffs one year. Your team won the league. Um, how how is it for a former major leaguer in that in that perspective? Like you know you've you played in the major leagues, now you're managing a team, but the team's winning. Is it is is it is there any similarity to success as a player that you have as a minor league manager? Um, as a player and a coach, I, you know I just try to try to remember how hard it was to play. You know, uh, I think a lot of managers forget. You know. Playing is not very easy, you know. There are easy days, but overall, it's a lot of work and it's a grind. And I always try to remember that, and you know, give my players the benefit of the doubt in that aspect. But, but yeah, I had some really good teams. I mean, guys have played really good, and get you know, some guys were overachievers at times. But, but um, yeah, we won a couple leagues, and you know, we're the minor league team of the year in, in uh, 2002 in Akron, and, and uh, we. Uh, had some pretty good players, and I mean, the players made it all without question. You know, Victor Martinez, Johnny Brawl, the greedy size, more Matt Weeders, you know, guys like that, you know, uh, um, definitely made it. You know, CC Sabathia, Danny Byers, all these guys, um, you know, made it. You know, it wasn't me, it was they, they went out and played and, and uh, did well. So uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, you know, coaching those guys and, and uh, being a part of their development and growth. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, listen, Brad, I want to thank you for having some time today. Hopefully we can stay in touch and I get you on the show sometime in the near future. Sounds good, man. So I hope you guys enjoyed that little spot there where Brad comments. And, of course, Brad uh, was a very highly touted prospect. And, you know, he was I think he was a little modest in the fact that, he, you know, when he was drafted number four overall by the Atlanta Braves in 1979, uh, it was, he was looked at as a guy that very well could be one of the star power hitters in a game. 
couple different things. Bill James, uh, you know, a well-known baseball historian, you know, the whole thing, uh, mentions that here's a guy that really could have been great and he may have shot all his uh, all his beads in the minor leagues as far as being such a good power hitter in the minor leagues and just simply may not have had anything left by the time he made the major leagues but also uh, there's a report out there that the Atlanta Braves actually turned down a trade that would have uh, sent comments to the Boston Red Sox for Jim Rice so that's uh, you know that that's some pretty uh, pretty good respectability there to be in a conversation like that. Obviously, Rice is uh, you know a baseball Hall of Famer, you know, and uh, uh, listen, I mean, this is a guy that really could have had a very good career. I think you compare it now to a guy like let's say like a Mike Hessman, who uh, hits all these home runs in the minor leagues and is just unable to get it together at the big league level. But you know, I definitely want to thank Brad for having a couple minutes today. Of course, this is John Pielli here on the Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Reminder: tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Anything you want to talk about baseball related, I promise I'll, t- I'll tweet back, uh, reply to every message, everybody that sends me a tweet during the duration of my broadcast. But um, I, I when I recorded my show last week, um, you know, a couple days before it actually went on the air, I didn't get a chance really to comment on the, uh, the, the fight between the, the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers and the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks the other day. To me, that's what baseball is all about, man. You get to see something where, you know, there, there was no fool in it. There was no idiot. There was no guy that actually started a fight for no reason. This was two teams kind of going at each other. And, uh, you know, so, some obviously sometimes things escalate a little bit. And uh, obviously you know, the, a battle that ends up starting with a hit by pitch of Ian Kennedy of Yasiel Puig, who I talked about obviously on the show last week about how great he's been. He continues to hit the ball ridiculously right now. And he's hitting uh, a ball actually bounced off of his, looks like his elbow, and hit him in the nose. And the Dodgers end up retaliating with Zach Greinke hitting the catcher of the Arizona Diamondbacks, Miguel Montero. And then the Diamondbacks feel like they got to go a step further. They go after Greinke, hit him in the head, and that's where the big fracas starts. Um, any, if anybody had any issue with it, it might have been a situation where uh, you ask, why do the uh, Diamondbacks retaliate after the Dodgers had retaliated? But sometimes, listen, you're, you're gritty, you're fighting, you're out there, you're trying to win a game. I don't have any problem with it. I think some people do, and I, I just didn't in that situation. But to me, it's a classic MLB uh, rivalry brawl. You go at it, you do the thing, and that's, you know, in my opinion, really, uh, you know, what baseball is all about. But, you know, moving on a little forward, a couple different things we want to get into this week. We're going to talk a little bit about the Mets, uh, talk a little bit about the Phillies, and bring up a little bit about the New York Yankees. But uh, I do want to start off, uh, talk a little bit about something I wrote about today, JohnPLA.com, Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. The Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, obviously a team that's playing very well this year. To, to me, they've exceeded expectations a little bit. I thought they might have uh, done, went a little far last year when they traded Justin Upton. But I think one deal that they may very well regret in the future could very well be the trade that sent Trevor Bauer, the right-hand pitcher, to the Cleveland Indians and the deal that sent Shinsu Chu to the Cincinnati Reds. And, of course, the Diamondbacks out of it got their starting shortstop and a guy they feel like is going to be there for the near, for the very distant future, and that's Didi Gregorius. Um, Trevor Bauer, to me, is a guy that really has number one stuff. He could absolutely be an ace on the staff. 
Uh, the Di I know the Diamondbacks had, had a little bit of reservations as far as what they really thought of him being a long-term solution there. His his delivery is a little bit quirky. I think some people compare it to like a Tim Lincecum thing, and they look at what happened with Lincecum as far as as far as where he has regressed over the last couple of years, and they feel the same thing could happen with Bauer. In my opinion, Bauer has absolute ace number one stuff. And the Diamondbacks, listen, it's not like the Diamondbacks have done wrong here. They, they have, they've built a very good young starting rotation. they got some very good stars on their team. Paul Goldschmidt's going to be phenomenal. The catcher Montero, who I mentioned before, is going to be a phenomenal player. And there's a lot of players that they have that are going to make them a very good perennial playoff team. But my question is, could they regret the trade of Trevor Bauer. Well, one thing will keep that from being a regret, and that's, of course, the performance of, sec of shortstop Didi Gregorius, who if he becomes the shortstop for the next 10 years, which he very well could, then I think they will forget about Trevor Bauer pretty quickly. Another thing that may allow them to, to forget it on a kind of a short-term basis is what they have in a lot of their young starting pitching. It obviously starts with Ian Kennedy, who is their, their ace, a former 20-game winner, a guy that came over, of course, from the Yankees in a trade that sent Curtis Granderson to the Yankees. Max Scherzer ended up going to Detroit. Obviously, a deal that very well could have said has helped all three teams involved. But, uh, you know, you add that to a guy like Patrick Corbin, who's 9-0 and this year, 228 ERA. Wade Miley won 16 games as a rookie last season. Randall Delgado came over in the Justin Upton trade. He's going to be part of the rotation at some time in the near future. And it's real easy to forget about Trevor Cahill, who came over from the Oakland Athletics in the trade that sent Colin Calgill over. He's only 25 right now. So in, in regards to the starting rotation of the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Diamondbacks were dealing from a position of strength. And that's how they were able to trade Bauer but I do think the one reason why it may not be that big of a deal, and listen, I still think Bauer's going to be a star. I think Bauer's going to be an ace-type pitcher. But they made a trade to Diamondbacks in 2010 when they sent Dan Harron to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. In that trade, they received Patrick Corbin, the before-mentioned 9-0, 2 ERA pitcher, as well as, as Joe Saunders and a left-hand pitcher named Tyler Skaggs. And Skaggs was just 19 at the time. He's made his major league debut this year at age 21 and has a huge upside. So I do think that uh, Diamondbacks, in, as far as a young rotation, looks like he's going to be very good over the next several years, even without Bauer. But I think the Indians may have gotten themselves a steal here because if you put Bauer at the top of the rotation with a Justin Masterson and some of the other guys they got there, I think it's going to be a very formidable one-two punch for the, uh, the Cleveland Indians over the next several seasons. So look out for that. Trevor Bauer, I really do think, is going to be a star. The question is, will the Diamondbacks regret it or will they be okay? in spite of trading Trevor Bauer. Once again, John Pielli right here on the MTR Radio Network. We'll take our first break of the day. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com. 
and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. You're listening to MTR Radio, powered by mtrmedia.com. Welcome back. This is John Pielli right here in the Pass Ball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network, ready to knock out some more baseball talk. Uh, one thing that I've always focused on, and I, and I do want to keep the fans, the listeners, kind of updated on what's going on because uh, you see as over the course of a long baseball season, like any year, you see teams that are, are kind of uh, at a point where they look like they are running away with things, and sometimes there's teams that get off to good starts and kind of fade a little bit. And then, of course, there's some other uh, teams that struggle for a long time and all of a sudden get it together at the right time. And I've spent a lot of time talking about teams such as the Toronto Blue Jays, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and a little bit even about the Washington Nationals, who have all been disappointments this year. They were all up on my radar as far as teams that I felt really had a good chance of not only making a postseason, but to win their respective divisions. And you know, the Dodgers are still struggling at 29 and 39. You look at the, the Angels, who are eight games under 500. You got the Nationals, who are a game under 500 that few people have even talked about. But the team that seems to be on the rise a little bit in regards to Major League Baseball is the Toronto Blue Jays. And the Toronto Blue Jays are a team that, yes, they are still suffering through some tough injuries. They're a team that really expect themselves to have a guy at Jose Reyes that was going to be their starting shortstop, a guy that was supposed to be a center of this team. And the unfortunate thing is him and his 395 batting average have been out out for the last two months as he waits to return from his ankle injury. But they have gone out there and gotten a job done. And lately, uh, over the last week or so, they've played some very good baseball. You look at a couple guys that had been struggling, starting to get it together. A guy who's been very consistent this year has been their designated hitter, Adam Lind. And Adam is out there hitting 344 with eight homers and 24 RBIs, kind of reestablishing himself as a power hitter, a guy that's going to go out there and hit for some home runs. And now here's a guy that honestly was almost done a couple years ago. You look at a guy that, if you really look at the past, here's a guy who's hit 35 home runs in a season before in 2009 with the Toronto Blue Jays, hit 305 that year. Last year, he struggled. The year before that was kind of a down year. You actually looked for two seasons in 2010 and 2011 where he hit 237 and 251, uh, seeing his power numbers go down a little bit. Last year was kind of an injury plague season. He spent some time in the minor leagues but only hit – Uh, 11 home runs and I think the Blue Jays were thinking that maybe it was time to make a change and to kind of move on from Adam Lind and this year um, he's kind of hit a little bit of resurgence I mean the fact that he's hitting 344 right now he's cut down on the strikeouts he's hitting for some power he's he's kind of been one of the quiet stories this year that that's kind of deserving some some uh, some uh, discussion in regards to comeback player of the year awards 
Uh, obviously, it's a team that's centered around Jose Bautista, who's quietly putting up his home runs. He'll have his 30, 40 home runs like he does every year. Edwin Encarnacion is leading the team in home runs with 18 after hitting over 40 last season for them. And they very quietly kind of put things back together as they're trying to contend in the American League East, which you know that you got to be over 500 fighting with the other teams to have a chance. And the Diamond, and I'm sorry, the uh, Blue Jays are right there to a point where I think they could get it back together. But they're starting pitching, and I've criticized their starting pitching. Guys who have proven themselves, guys who have had winning records in their career, they've gone out there, they've dominated, and it, it hasn't worked out to a point. Uh, you know, a guy like R.A. Dickey is kind of getting himself back together. Right now he's 6-8 and eight with a 4-9 ERA. Uh, you know he's going to be the bulldog, the workhorse, the guy that's going to go out there and make his 33, 34 starts. He's going to pitch 200-plus innings. Obviously, he's, he's been uh, shaken up a little bit with his uh, turn back to the American League, pitching for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he's necessarily lost anything. I think he's got to go out there and consistently be the pitcher that he feels like he knows that he is. And you look at some of the other guys, guys. Mark Burley has pitched a little bit better. Brandon Morrow's been hurt, and you're hoping to really get him back on track. You know, Josh Johnson's out. You know, Jay Happ's out. But a guy that has gone out there and helped them has really been Chen Ming Wang, who's gone out there and made two very good starts for the Toronto Blue Jays. The issue that I have, really, with uh, Chen Ming Wang in Major League Baseball is why was this guy not in a Major League rotation already? I mean, here's a guy that over the last couple seasons has been rehabbing from an injury that he had with, uh, you know, his, maybe his original injury he had with the New York Yankees in 2008. You know he hasn't been the same since. Uh, he's missed full seasons before. He's, he, he's, he's pitched just a couple games in a couple different seasons. 2011 made 11 starts for the Washington Nationals. Pitched in 10 games last year. Five as a starter for the Nationals. And this year was kind of courted by a couple different teams. The Nationals were interested. The New York Yankees were interested. Now, neither of those teams wanted to see him at the major league level. And what, one thing that I have a hard time with is the fact that this guy was pitching well this year. It's not like he was going out there stinking up the joint. The last couple of years he struggled at the major league level but this past season he was out there for AAA Scran Wilkes-Barre for the New York Yankees in nine starts at a 233 ERA and was kind of really getting it together. Maybe the Yankees felt like they didn't really have room in a rotation for him. And, and that's understandable. They got guys like Yvonne Nova and David Phelps kind of uh, competing for that last spot that they were holding it down. And with Andy Pettit being healthy, maybe they didn't feel like they had the need or the space for him. But here's a guy that pitched well enough to belong in a major league rotation. And if you look at what he did last season, uh, I know he struggled a little bit in A Harrisburg uh, for the Nationals organization, but he pitched well in AAA. He pitched well prior to that he is he, a guy that really did belong in the major leagues and I, I just don't get it I mean I'm glad that the Toronto Blue Jays have given him a chance and I hope he gets a chance to if he if he continues to pitch well to finish the season in a rotation for the Blue Jays because that gives them another option when you talk about other guys that have struggled I mean, they, would not, they did not expect Josh Johnson to go out there and be done after seven starts. Hopefully he comes back at some point this year, but they got to fill the spot in the meantime. They've been running Ramon Ortiz out there. Chad Jenkins, they've run out there. Ismael Rogers is in the rotation right now. So you're looking at the Toronto Blue Jays, a, a starting rotation that looks nothing like it did at the beginning of the season. 
I mean, they have a guy in Ricky Romero who's down back in the minor leagues and actually was was uh, taken off the 40-man roster, and he's going to try to work his way back to try to get himself where he could pitch and be competitive again. But the Toronto Blue Jays, who had a projected rotation this year of R.A. Dickey, Mark Burley, Brandon Morrow, Josh Johnson, and Ricky Romero, may actually have some success going with a different type of rotation right now. Obviously, Romero is not in the mix. J.A. Happ, of course, he had that unfortunate injury where he got hit in in the face with that line drive. Uh, Once he gets himself back, he's probably a guy that could be a, a fourth or fifth starter for them. Ismael Rogers is a guy that's that's been up and down. He's been a reliever, a starter, came up with the Colorado Rockies organization. He pitched pretty well for Cleveland last year as a reliever and has taken another shot as a starting pitcher. The Rockies, when they brought him up, they thought he would be a very good starter for them. Um, you're, you're looking really at a team that's rotation is going to look a little bit different this year. And I obviously find it interesting because you look at what was expected and everything that the Toronto Blue Jays did this offseason, really the biggest moves centered around what they did with their starting rotation with Dickey and Mark Burley and, of course, Josh Johnson. And uh, obviously Dickey and and Burley are going to have a lot of say in what happens with the Toronto Blue Jays here. If they end up, you know, just not getting themselves back to where people think they can be, then I think you're going to have a lot of blame that's going to go in the direction of an R.A. Dickey and a Mark Burley. But Josh Johnson's hurt right now. You got to fill it in somehow. I think Wong is a guy that certainly can fill a spot in this rotation. You don't have Hap right now. You're going with a guy in Ismail Rogers who does have a track record of being a starter. Not a very good one, but you know may have matured to a point where he could be relied and counted on to go out there and make some consistent starts. But And I've said before, the Toronto Blue Jays are not going anywhere without some good starting pitching. This is a starting pitching staff that has been a disappointment at this point. Yes, during their recent six-game winning streak they have gone out there and they've pitched a lot better and I'll tell you that's something that really has had to happen and I think it's something that's very important to see as, as we move forward the, the question I guess you could ask the fans and yeah feel free to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli uh, are, are the blue do the Blue Jays have a chance are they done because I'm you know sitting here at three games under 500 I don't think they're done by any stretch of the imagination and you look at a lot of the things that have happened in the American League East you're talking about the New York Yankees struggle and kind of coming back down to earth after a very good start. You look at the Baltimore Orioles, the Tampa Bay Rays, teams that have played well, but they're beatable. And if the Blue Jays can get themselves back into this group, get back into grouping, not necessarily run away with the division, because right now the team to beat in the American League East is the Boston Red Sox. And there's nothing that you could do to deny that. The Boston Red Sox have played phenomenal baseball and, and belong where they are. I mean, at 13 games over 500, I don't think too many people really expected it. But they have gotten a job done. Offensively, they've gone out there and they've scored some runs. They've gotten some very good starting pitching. And I've told you about their bullpen and what I've, what I've thought about the bullpen this entire season is that, that even in spite of the injuries that they have had, Joel Hanrahan out for the season, Tommy John surgery, the whole thing. Uh, they have a very deep bullpen that's led right now by by uh, Andrew Bailey and Koji Uhara, Andrew Miller, Junichi Tozawa. I mean, you know, you throw in a Franklin Morales. I mean, they, they've got a bunch of guys that can go out there and, sh- number one, get strikeouts, and number two, throw gas. I mean, they, they got about four or five guys right now, even without Hanrahan in the mix that could throw upwards to about 95 and up. And I think that, you know, you make it a six-inning game, and I think that's something that some people kind of disregarded this year. If the Boston Red Sox pitchers can be consistent, 
And let's be honest, I mean, Clay Buchholz has been phenomenal. He better be starting the game uh, at City Field for the American League this year. 9-0, 171 ERA. He has been ridiculous uh, for the Boston Red Sox. John Lester has pitched well. But, you know, he's had a couple of hiccups here and there. But, you know, Lester has pitched well. Ryan Dempster's been okay. Felix DeBrant has been okay. But the other guy that has really gone out there and pitched very well for the Boston Red Sox and maybe a little bit unexpected, and that's John Lackey. John Lackey, of course, had the Tommy John surgery, missed all of last season. Everybody talked about how bad of a contract this was going to be in regards to the Boston Red Sox and uh, how they wasted their money and you know how could you sign a guy for you know five years and 82.5 million with a 2015 vesting option he's been terrible you know two seasons you know he, he, he went out there and he, he had a very bad 2011 season there's nothing that you could do to deny that he led the league in hit by pitches he led the league in runs allowed he pitched to a 641 ERA while going 12 and 12 in 28 starts for the 2011 Boston the Red Sox and of course you find out that he's having Tommy John surgery which makes things worse you're like hey you're paying this guy and he isn't even going to be around well I'll tell you John Lackey has a chance right now to make his contract worthwhile he is pitching close and very well near what he was in about 2007-2008 when he was in the prime with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And I think this is a guy that can go out there and certainly provide something for the Boston Red Sox. He's a very dependable piece in their rotation right now. And as the season goes on, you're going to look at the leadership of a guy like John Lackey being maybe one of the missing pieces that they had that they didn't, didn't really have over the last couple seasons. And it does sound a little weird because John Lackey he's been under contract this whole time but at the same time you look at the fact that listen he was terrible in 2011 2012 he wasn't around now he's back I I think you got to give a lot of credit to John Farrell as the manager and not just what he's doing behind the bench but the impact that he has had on this pitching staff and we've talked about it Chris Bezzialli has uh, elaborated on it a little bit being the Boston expert and all but Farrell as the pitching coach with the Boston Red Sox had a, had a lot of these guys before whether it's a Buckholz whether it's a Lester these are these are guys that have pitched for him as a pitching coach and obviously uh, Farrell ends up going to Toronto do you see what happens in Toronto Toronto gets some very good pitching from uh, guys like Brandon Morrow and other other pitchers that kind of step up under Farrell's tutelage and obviously you see the Boston rotation kind of going to shit over the last uh, year year and a half or year and a couple months and Farrell comes back as the manager of the Red Sox to me it's no coincidence that the Red Sox pitchers are pitching well. They have one of the best pitching staffs in baseball. And it wasn't because they got better pitchers. It's because they'd gotten some some better instruction from the manager, John Farrell, who obviously was a former Major League pitcher, the whole thing. Uh, and listen, they've made it a six-inning game. He knows the buttons to push in that bullpen. You could go to a Tazawa. You could go to a Yuhara. You could go to an Andrew Miller or Franklin Morales. You could go to somebody in a sixth, seventh inning, get yourself ready for the eighth and ninth. What, of course, Andrew Bailey is the closer, and Bailey has pitched well, probably worthy of an all-star appearance if you're looking for a reliever to add at the last minute to the to the, to the um, American League all-star team. But you're looking at guys, let's say, Bailey, Tazawa, Yuhara, Miller, Four guys who have, have, have uh, are, are averaging more than uh, nine strikeouts per nine innings pitched. And Miller is actually leading the league with 14.8 strikeouts per nine innings pitched, which is phenomenal. You've got four guys out there. And don't forget about Craig Breslow, the left-hander. 
Here's a, here's a guy that uh, you know certainly has been overlooked for a couple of years. But if you look at the performance that he has had over the last several seasons, I mean, it's amazing that he has played for, uh, what is it? What are you talking about? Eight teams? One, two, three, four, five, six different teams with a couple different stints with, a, with, uh, with Boston. Uh, here, here's a guy that has been very, very quietly putting up good numbers as a left-handed reliever in Major League Baseball. Uh, obviously, he, he established himself with the Oakland Athletics, really. Uh, uh, the season he had in 2009 with Minnesota, getting traded over to Oakland and becoming a, a left-handed specialist in 2009. And then again in 2010, kind of got him a, a little bit of recognition. But the last couple of years, he has pitched very well. For Arizona and Boston in 2012, he pitched to a 270 ERA, almost uh, almost a strikeout an inning. This year in 19 games, he is uh, a 196 ERA. I, I know he's had a little bit of injuries to battle with and uh, get over the whole thing, but he's another guy that's added to the mix here. And I think the Boston Red Sox, pitching-wise, are, are kind of uh, ridden themselves to the front of this battle in the American League East. And I do think it's something that's worth looking at. So, uh, you know, we kind of broke down the American League East a little bit. We're going to get into some other things uh, going on here in the Pass Ball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli. Back after this. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And, you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop. Specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and bodywork, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609 609- 927-9454 and check out their website www.redroseautobody.com follow them on Facebook and Twitter Red Rose Body Shop 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue Egg Harbor Township New Jersey 609-927-9454 Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. Saber Metrics. Created by computer geeks that think they're better than you. Saber Metrics. All these numbers make them seem smart and you stupid. Saber Metrics. I know more than you. Saber Metrics. Seldomly makes baseball points that cannot be proven using conventional stats. Oh, 
yeah. Welcome back. This is John Pialli right here in a Passball Show MTR Radio Network finishing up the first hour. Got a couple good spots planned for the second hour, so feel free to tune in. Former Major League pitcher Kip Gross will be joining us in the second hour as well as former New York Mets uh, infielder, outfielder Marlon Anderson. So a couple good spots planned for the second hour. Hope you guys enjoyed everything that you hear so far. And, uh, we're, well, of course, a reminder to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. Uh, I'll, I'll reply to every tweet, and I've been doing a good job with it. Um, the amount of tweets that I've received, I think, are very respected. I appreciate uh, those who tune in and take the second to uh, co- comment on what they hear in the program here. And I've gotten back to just about everybody. So keep it keep it going. And like I said, dude, as I'm listening, uh, you know, on my own, uh, I'll feel free to get back to everybody that tweets at me. But a couple different things I want to go on. There was a couple anniversaries. A couple days ago, the uh, former manager of the Kansas City Royals, Dick Hauser. Um, yeah, of course, an anniversary of his death. Uh, Hauser, of course, passed away in 1987 um, after battling a brain tumor and stuff like that and and Hauser was the first uh, uniformed member of the Kansas City Royals to uh, have their number retired at Kauffman Stadium his number 10 is up there went up there of course before George Brett and Frank White and of course Jackie Robinson's universal number 42 and uh, you know really nobody prior to that in the Kansas City Royal uniform had stood out to a point where they uh, they they you know com- you know deserve to have their number retired uh, I think you can make a dispute you could have a little bit of a uh, disagreement of whether you think Hauser stood out as a as an all-time manager but in the history of the Kansas City Royals franchise he, he certainly deserves credit for what he did I mean he got the team their only World Series championship in 1985 and was a manager of some very good teams including the 81 season where he took over and replaced Jim Fry um, Hauser of course started out you know, as, as a shortstop for a couple of years. We'll get into that in a little bit. But his managerial career ended up starting with the New York Yankees. And Dick Hauser was a coach after he was done retire. He, he retired in baseball from baseball in 1968, uh, became a coach for the Yankees for a better part of about 10 seasons. And he ended up uh, serving as an interim manager in 1978, where the Yankees fired Billy Martin and replaced him, of course, with Bob Lemon. Uh, he was a manager for, for one game there, which, which the Yankees lost, and then eventually takes over the team himself in 1980. He managed the, the Yankees for the entire 1980 season, won 103 games with that team. They ended up making it to the postseason where they lost, of course, to the Kansas City Royals, and the Royals ended up going to the World Series and lost to the Philadelphia Phillies. Hauser was let go after the 1980 season, replaced with Gene Michael. And, of course, Gene Michael split the season with uh, Bob Lemon in the 1981 season as the manager of the New York Yankees. But Hauser, as a free agent manager, ends up... uh, getting the job with the Kansas City Royals organization, takes over in mid part of the 81 season. Of course, for those of us who remember the 1981 season, of course, that season was shortened because of the strike. It was interrupted. You actually had two seasons there. And rather, rather than keeping the same thing going on, uh, it was decided that it would be a split season and the teams that had led their respective divisions would be automatically awarded a chance to p- play in the postseason. So the first season was done. Um, the Royals and the rest of Major League Baseball got back after the strike. Jim Fry was let go 10 games in to the second half of the season and replaced by Dick Hauser. The Royals end up going 20-13 and 13 
and won the Western Division for the second half of the season, getting a chance to play in the playoffs. And of course, the two Wests against the two Easts, the Yankees were, uh, were, were matched up. Uh, against, I believe, the Minnesota Twins. And then the Kansas City Royals were set up against the Oakland Athletics, managed, ironically, by Billy Martin. And, of course, it was it was the Athletics who beat the Royals, and then the Yankees end up getting, them, getting a matchup against uh, the Athletics, which, of course, had its own fitting. You had Martin, who was the former manager of the Yankees, going up against the Yankees. But it would have set up what would have been in e- in another kind of odd situation because both managers who were managing in that American League Division Series had previously managed the Yankees within the last year or two. And and I find it amazing. I mean, you know, you knew one of them was going to get their chance to go up against the Yankees and try to beat them in that 81 ALCS. Uh, obviously, the more popular one was probably Billy Martin because because of his ties to the Yankees, being a Yankee player. And, uh, you know, obviously you knew about his relationship with George Steinbrenner. So it ended up kind of standing out. The Yankees end up beating Martin in the athletics and getting to the World Series that season. But, you know, Hauser, obviously we could have made a case that it was like, you know, Hauser was the manager of the 80 Yankees and he had a chance to go up against the 81 Yankees. But, you know, Dick Hauser as a manager was certainly a guy that I don't think gets enough credit just because his time was cut short. Here's a guy that really could have stuck around for a while, probably been the force behind uh, behind the bench for the Kansas City Royals and kind of maybe padded some uh, some good win stats and maybe kept that team competitive for a little while longer. And Hauser, of course, started as a shortstop from 61 to 68, where he played for the Kansas City Athletics, the Cleveland Indians, and the New York Yankees. Burst onto the scene as a rookie, second in the AL Rookie of the Year voting for the Athletics in 61. In 158 games, he had 283 homers, 45 RBIs, with 108 runs scored, 171 hits, and 37 stolen bases. He had he had 92 walks that year as well. Made the All-Star team. Obviously failed to duplicate his stats for the next couple seasons, was traded to Cleveland, and had his best, maybe his best season in 64, where he played in all 162 games. Obviously, his numbers were maybe not to the level of, of, of a, what you saw as a rookie, but he played very well. He led the American League in plate appearances and sacrificed bunts and uh, hit 256, three armors, 52 RBIs, 100 run, one run scored, 163 hits, 23 stolen ba- 23 doubles and 20 stolen bases, and had 79 walks. He, he, was, he was kind of that, that shortstop that put the ball in play and kept you in the game, and he did a pretty good job. Of course, ends up playing for the Yankees in 67 and 68, and uh, the very surprised 68 Yankees, the team that kind of got themselves back on track, 183 games after some very difficult seasons, and of course, 68 was the last season that Mickey Mantle was there and was also the last season of the career of, of the playing career of Dick Hauser, who, of course, became a coach at that point. So some very interesting things about Dick Hauser, obviously a guy that deserves all the discussion about him because he was a very good baseball man, a guy that obviously had his uh, his time cut a little bit short uh, because of the, you know, the unfortunate uh, brain tumor dying and the whole thing. And. Another guy whose anniversary kind of sets up only a couple of years ago. He passed away, but it was a guy that is known very well with the uh, Atlanta Braves and has ties to the Milwaukee and Boston Braves. And that, of course, was Ernie Johnson. And Ernie Johnson, a well-known uh, play-by-play guy, he did TV and radio for the Atlanta Braves for many, many years. But few know the fact that he, he actually pitched for a significant amount of time in the majors with the Boston and Milwaukee Braves. 
And if you look at some of the guys that, that did it, there was only one player that had a chance to play for all three. Uh, the Boston, Milwaukee, and Atlanta Braves. And that, of course, was Eddie Matthews, who in 1966 played with the Atlanta Braves before he ended up uh, moving on. But, you know, guys like Warren Spahn, Hank Aaron, they, they, they didn't do it. Ernie Johnson did it, but didn't play for the Atlanta Braves. And if you look at Ernie Johnson, who came up as a draft pick for the uh, for the Boston Braves in 1942. He obviously served some time in the military in World War II and stuck around with that organization until they made the move from Boston to Milwaukee after the 1952 season. So that's 10 years that he was affiliated with the Boston Braves. And of course, he spent the majority of his playing career pitching for the Milwaukee Braves from about 52 to 57, 58, when he ended up, uh, you know, he ended up moving on before hanging his career up, uh, was a member of the 57 World Series championship with the Milwaukee Braves, the 58 NL pennant. As a right-handed reliever, he went 40-23, and 3-77 ERA in 273 games from 1950 and then 52-58 to 58 in his career. Uh, ended up joining the Milwaukee Braves as a broadcaster in 1962. And then again from uh, 1965. And, of course, the Braves made the move to Atlanta in 1966, where he remained there until 1998 as a broadcaster. Obviously, if you're an Atlanta Brave fan, if you've listened to your share of games, yes, there's been some other broadcasters that have had, uh, you know, have, have been well known. But you look at a guy like Ernie Johnson, and he certainly is an icon. And I think every organization has that. Every organization has their guy that you could say is absolutely one of, one of their uh, their voice. And Ernie Johnson was the voice of the Atlanta Braves, but obviously had ties to the Boston and Milwaukee Braves, which I, I obviously found very interesting. But moving forward, once again, this is John Pialli right here on the Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I'm uh, just trying to fi- finish out the first hour. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the American League East. I do want to get a little bit of talk about the New York Yankees before we finish things up here. The Yankees, of course, have struggled a little bit. Uh, they all You hear all the talk this season about the big uh, the big injuries that the Yankees have. And wait till this team gets their guys back. And very slowly, you started to see it. So you saw some players coming back, whether it was... Curtis Granderson or Kevin Euclid or Mark Teixeira all coming back in the lineup and actually having an impact on the team and the sad thing that has happened unfortunately these players have gotten themselves injured they've gotten themselves hurt again and Teixeira may have been a situation where he was never healthy enough he didn't really last for too long, which was kind of sad. He's out probably going back on a disabled list. Kevin Euclid is back on a disabled list. Curtis Granderson re-injured himself. So the three guys that they were expecting to get back and having a serious impact on the New York Yankees are back on a DL. So what do the Yankees do? Do they go back to the drawing board? I mean, is that all they can do? You know, the unfortunate thing, you look at Lyle Overbay and Vernon Wells and Travis Hafner, they, they have, they've been productive. Uh, you know, overall this season, but they certainly have all come back down to earth. And it's a situation where I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, the, maybe these players were kind of playing themselves up, expecting to get an opportunity and expecting their jobs to be taken from them. Uh, once these other players get back, they got to step it up again. And you look at Wells, who has dropped down to 230. Hafner is hitting 221. Lyle Overbay still respectable 240, but these these are guys that are being counted on to be integral parts of the New York Yankees lineup 
and it's kind of tough to see what has happened with Mark Teixeira. You know he's injured right now. He was just at 8 for 53 with three home runs, a 151 average before he went out again. Granderson was hitting at 250 with just the one solo home run that he hit in his eight games that he was around before he ends up going back on a DL. Kevin Euclid, he's only hitting 219 in his couple stints up here in between DL stints. So the Yankees got to try to figure out where they're going to get their offense from. Is this a situation where Brian Cashman is going to go out there and make another move? I mean, I don't know. I think the Yankees got to figure out what they're going to do uh, to try to compete this season and have to probably understand that they may have to do the bulk of this without some of their key players. And I don't think this was a plan that they had coming into this season. I know you saw what happened in spring training and where the Yankees were set up. Uh, you knew Granderson was going to be out. You knew Teixeira was going to be out. You knew uh, a and Jeter were not going to be playing to this point. And obviously the injury to Kevin Euclid, you add that all in. You see the guys coming back, whether it's uh, Francisco Cervelli, who should be back within the next week or two uh, as their starting catcher. You look at the, all these injuries that they have had, and the thing that you would hope as a Yankee fan was the fact that they could sit there and kind of tread water to a point where they can get themselves in a position that they could benefit from their regular guys coming back. Now it's taken a little bit longer than it expected. You look at the Yankees who are sitting right now at a season low, really since they played a really good baseball, just seven games over 500. And it's going, it may very well get worse. Granderson's not coming back for a little while. Kevin Euclid is back on the DL. We talked about Teixeira on the DL again. A-Rod and Jeter slowly working their ways back, but they're not going to be back probably for at least another month or so. So this stretch right here for the New York Yankees is extremely, extremely critical. And some things uh, you've talked about, what has worked for the Yankees this year, have the Yankees been able to maintain plus 500 baseball without really their entire offense, uh, is certainly been their pitching. Hiroki Kuroda has gone out there and pitched like an all-star. The guy deserves to be on the all-star team in spite of his 6-5 and five record. CeCe Sabathia has been the bulldog. He's given you innings. Even when he hasn't had his best, he's going 7-8 innings just about every start. Andy Pettit is healthy right now. I think that's something that's very important for the Yankees. Uh, their bullpen has been phenomenal, like you could expect. Mariano, David Robertson, some of the other guys have helped out. Preston Claiborne has pitched phenomenal as a right-handed reliever for the New York Yankees. Boone Logan's having a good year. Adam Warren's pitching very well. So the Yankees' bullpen has gotten a job done. The starting rotation, for the most part, has been okay. CC has had a couple, uh, couple ups and downs. Phil Hughes has struggled at times. But other than that, the Yankees' rotation has been very good. And they're going to need to continue to perform at this level if they want to have a chance to compete in the American League East. Because I talked before about the Toronto Blue Jays, who I think are on the rise. And they're going to get even better when Jose Reyes gets back. They're going to get even better when Josh Johnson gets back. And, you know, maybe a guy like Chin Ming Wong could resurrect his career in Toronto. The Orioles aren't going away. The Rays aren't going away. We talked before about the Boston Red Sox and how good they are. The New York Yankees are in a tough position. And I'm not going to predict it. You have to, I, I don't know how things are going to go. But if the Yankees don't start hitting, and if the Yankees don't start playing baseball that was comparable to what, the way they played to start out this season and in April and early May, the Yankees may be that team that are going to drop to the bottom of the pack in the American League East. And I know a lot of fans aren't used to that. I know a lot of fans don't expect or enjoy or want to say that, especially Yankee fans. 
But I tell you, they have to step it up. They have to get some production from somebody, whether it's whoever's playing shortstop, a Brignac or a Jason Nix, or somebody playing third base, or Lyle Overbay, or Vernon Wells, or Travis Hafner, or Chris Stewart. They got to step it up offensively because if they don't, they're going to be in a very, very difficult spot because I see the other teams continuing to improve this year and not so much with the New York Yankees. Maybe this is the year they're going to take a step back. I think they kind of made it seem like they're going to hang around this season up to this point. I think you have to be happy with the overall product over what you've seen over the first couple months of the season. But now is it may become a turning point where the Yankees realize they have to go on without their key players and they're either going to be able to do it or they're not. Once again, this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Want to thank Brad Comments and uh, take our first uh, big break of the day. Five minutes. We'll be back for the second hour of the Passball Show after.